0: Bob has a problem, right? He does. So do we, though. Just like Bob, I think we're all living with a massive tension in our life. And most of us don't realise how much this tension is actually tearing us apart. In fact, we don't realise because we're so busy distracting ourselves... Or are our musing ourselves to death? That we've kind of just accepted that this is the way life is. This is as good as it gets. The good news is, it isn't. It's not as good as it gets. But here's the tension that Bob experiences that we experience. On the one hand, we think that we are pretty good people. Well, we're pretty good people in comparison to those other people. The ones who are over there, the ones who are not so good. And in general, we're happy to admit that we aren't perfect. But we usually say, well, we're not perfect. And then we usually add to that, but who is? Right? We we, we feel better about our imperfections by just saying, well, n- nobody is. We certainly don't think that we fall into the category of being a bad person in general. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, all of us know in the secret places of our soul that all is not well. We fight that sort of never-ending urge to perform or to impress, to accomplish more or to validate our existence in whatever sphere of the world we're in. We try harder, especially we try harder to not feel so bad about ourselves. We know what we want to do, right? We know what we want to do. But somehow it never seems to work out the way that it went in our minds. We we get into a situation we think we saw that going differently. We struggle with things like imposter syndrome or inferiority complexes. And even those people that we label as being a narcissist, you know, that's a pretty popular word these days, oh, that person's a narcissist. Um, I'm not sure we even really know what that word means most of the time, but but even the real narcissist amongst us uses their self-obsession to cloak over their own fears and insecurities. So that's on the one hand, we think we're doing pretty well But on the other hand, if we're very honest, we know we're not. Let's add a third complexity to that scenario. If it weren't tense enough, we add to that burden the religious checklists that we create. And some of those checklists have absolutely no biblical foundation at all. They're just the cultural baggage that we bring along in life. But other lists seem pretty reasonable and pretty fair, right? So things like um, joining up to Marty's reading list that he keeps getting up and talking about all the time. I should do that. If I was a good Christian, I would sign up for that and I would remember to do it every day. Uh, What about those of you who have tried to do a reading list and got a bit behind? You ever had that moment where you wake up and you think, oh, I need to try harder. You know what I'm going to do? I'm 15 days behind my reading list. Today, before I do anything else, I'm going to read those 15 days and catch right up and I'm going to feel so much better about myself. My I <laughs> Doing your quiet time. Praying more. What about not being anxious? And the Bible says... If I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be anxious, and I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to try harder to not be anxious. And now I'm feeling anxious about the fact that I can't be anxious enough. Or just sharing your faith with someone. There's there's a checklist. The problem with these lists is that we tend to use them like a ruler. We grab our list out, even good things, right? Reading your Bible, praying, sharing your faith. Great things, aren't they? Of course they are. Trouble is that we get them out like a ruler. And we try to measure ourselves with them. Rather than seeing that they're like those fruit. They just spring from a life that's connected to the vine. Many Christians just cannot understand. And I'm going to put my hand up and say there are plenty of days where deep down inside I struggle with this. Many of us just cannot understand what Jesus meant when he said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if we're honest, we sit down and we just go, yeah, right. Light? easy are you serious hmm. we may not understand the easy and light part but we certainly understand in that same place when jesus said weary and heavy laden hmm. we get that bit right matthew 11:28 through 30 is where you'll find those beautiful verses where Jesus says, come to me. Don't don't rush through this because you might know these words and they just sort of come off your tongue, but just stop and let them sit there for a moment. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's the problem that Bob thinks he has. Here's the problem I think we think we have. We know we're exhausted. We are tired of performing. Of striving. And you're tired of sinning. I am. We're trying harder. We're redoubling our efforts. We've turned over so many leaves. (laughs) But we just haven't made it yet. Or so we think. We just haven't made it. But guess what? You never will. You never will. I never will. We will never make it. Because we aren't equipped with what's required to make it. We don't have the resources. God's standard of righteousness is an unapproachable light. You get that? God lives in an inapproachable light. We can't even approach it. We can't even get near it. His pure holiness, the Bible says, is a consuming fire that burns with the heat of a thousand suns almost and destroys even the smallest hint of sin. That's a glory we can't measure up to in our natural state. You know those verses from Romans 3:23 some of you might know them off by heart even for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the problem is is that we're it's not a problem of measuring ourselves the problem is that we're using the wrong rulers we feel bad because we didn't do our quiet time today or because I didn't pray for as long as I thought a good Christian should pray. Or I felt embarrassed, and so I didn't, I didn't tell that person about the fact that I am a Christian when they were bad mouthing Christians. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to say anything. And, I'm, and then later on, I, I went home and I think, why did I do that? And I've got my rulers out and I'm measuring myself, and I, and I thought I've fallen short. We don't realize just how far short we've fallen, we've used the wrong rulers. The rulers are the the inapproachable glory of God. The consuming fire of his holiness. And God says, listen, no one measured up. We can't even get close. And then our problem is further compounded by the effect of sin. Not just sin itself, but the effect of sin. You realize there's a difference? There's sin... The falling short of the glory of God. That's that's what sin is. When I say I'm going to measure up to God's glory and I fall short, that's sin. But then sin has an effect. It's like when you throw a, a rock into a pond. There's the initial splash, isn't there? But then you watch the ripples. Sin has an effect. And often that effect is shame. We live with our sin, and we live with the shame of it. Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 8. Lamentations is a somewhat depressing book to read. You think when we preached through Hosea, it was hard. You wait till we get to Lamentations. This guy is just a professional lamenter. I'm just going to read one verse of it though because otherwise it'll just be too depressing <laughs> Lamentations chapter 1 verse 8 Jerusalem has sinned grievously therefore she has become an object of scorn now do you see the relationship between sin and effect she has sinned grievously therefore She's become an object of scorn. All who honoured her now despise her. For they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. That's what sin does. It exposes us. It leaves us standing, metaphorically, naked and exposed before a watching world. You ever have those dreams where you turned up to school in your underwear? No? Just me? Okay. I see a counsellor on occasion. I will bring that up with him. If you've never dwelt on it too long, I imagine most of us have an aversion to being caught out in public in our underwear or worse. That sense where someone might see me. And you have the picture and Lamentations of Jerusalem groaning in her shame and trying to cover herself, right? From a world that once loved her but now despises her that's what the shame of our nakedness does. The shame of our sin does. Our exposure. That shame wraps itself around us and and it drags us down. There's a very profound picture in the book of Jonah. Some of you are at least familiar with the story of Jonah, the guy that runs from God. Not because, like the little children's books tell us, he was afraid of the Ninevites. They were terrible people. They, they were. They, they did terrible things. You go back in history and you can find that out You're easily yourself. Horrendous people, but Jonah wasn't frightened of them. Jonah, Jonah ran away from God because he knew the character of God and he knew that God would be compassionate to those people. And he in fact, says in chapter 4, that's the reason why I ran, God, because I knew that you would do this. I knew that you would forgive their sin. Different message. Jonah chapter (laughs) 2. Jonah runs from God, ends up being thrown off a boat. The sea gets calmed. A great fish or a whale or something swallows him and he ends up being in there for three days before thrown back up on the beach and redirected on the original mission. This is what he prays when he's in the depths. Jonah 2 verses 3 Onwards, when you threw me into the depths, he's praying out to God. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas and the currents overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Can you hear Jonah's weight of shame? So Bob has a problem. But so do we. Bob's problem is our problem. We need a solution to overcome the chasm that stands between God and us, between His holiness and our sinfulness. But we also need a solution to our shame and to our weakness. Which makes me wonder if Bob ever cried out the words that Paul did. Romans 7 and 24. What a wretched man I am, Paul says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You ever called those words out or something similar? Maybe you haven't been able to utter them in those words. Maybe it's just been, been the groaning of your heart. Those moments where sin has caught up, where shame, shame is like seaweed that drags you down. I know I have. So we're looking for solutions, right? Well, here's here's a solution. Bob can go see the priest. Bob can go see the priest in Israel, Right? Fortunately for Bob, he can go and see a priest. He lives in ancient Israel. And God knew these people wouldn't and couldn't keep his perfect law. So he provides a solution for their dilemma. From the tribe of Levi, from the order of Aaron, came a succession of priests who stood in the gap between God and Bob. And everybody else. But how does that help Bob? What does the priest do? Well, here's a little summary. He is a priestly mediator. All right? A priest, especially a high priest, was primarily a mediator, which in its most simplest form means a go-between. The priest was a go-between. Between God and man. This means that when Bob went to the temple with his dilemma, the priest would approach God on Bob's behalf. And he would bring the required sacrifices to atone or or make amends for Bob's sin. And that was a pretty messy business, there was lots of death. Lots of blood involved, along with a a whole bunch of sort of ceremonial cleansing, which was sort of like just a special bath, followed by more rule-keeping. You also need to be quite an expert at knowing which sacrifice was required for which problem. So the priest would have to make a decision. Was this um, a two lambs and a bowl of grain problem or just a pigeon problem? Or was this like a, a whole yearling, a whole bull problem? We can laugh, but man, if you just did a a bit of a Google search or something better to find out what are all the sacrifices, the required sacrifices of Israel, that page just keeps scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I know. I was going to put it up on this page up here for you and say, look, here's some. It would have just kept on going. It's complex. The list of possible sacrifices that correspond with possible sins and their needs are massive. But after the right sacrifice was made, what should Bob do now? Well, here comes the high priest again. This time as a go-between who represents God back to Bob. The priest would remind Bob of God's law. He would remind him of his plan. He would instruct him as to how he should go about living in light of God's law, and he would remind him again about what would happen if he didn't. Sounds pretty easy, right? Bob's all sorted now. Bob can go home and get on with his life now, right? Wrong. Bob will sin again tomorrow, and Bob will have to go back to the priest again tomorrow. By rights, Bob will have to come back every day. The priest will have to do it all over again. In fact, God knew this well, and so he instituted the morning and the evening sacrifice. Exodus 29, verse 38. Just listen to this. God was instructing the Israelites as they go into the promised land, this is what you are to do. This is what you are to offer regularly on the altar every day. All right? Two year old lambs. In the morning, offer one lamb and at twilight, offer the other lamb. With the first lamb, offer two quarts of fine flour mixed with one quart of oil from crushed olives and a drink offering of one quart of wine. Every morning. You are to offer the second lamb at twilight, offer a grain offering and a drink offering with it, like the one in the morning, as a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. This will be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you. Can you see the problem? Morning and evening, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. A continual coming back with sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Bob had a few other problems as well. Bob's priest would eventually get old and die. And then he'd have to go and get another go-between. And unfortunately, not all the priests were good ones. Some of them did very bad things. Some of them still do. Which brings us to the next big problem. Bob's priest was a sinner too. Not only did he have to offer up the right sacrifices for Bob, before he could do that, he had to offer up the right sacrifices for himself. This problem of sinful priests who didn't want to get more sinful created a two-class society in ancient Israel. There was all the normal people, and then there was the clergy, the priests. They lived quite separate to everybody else. They didn't live the same lifestyle. They didn't want to risk touching something unclean. Or going too near a woman at the wrong time of the month, or accidentally touching uh, some fabric that had mixed fibers in it, or a piece of moldy bread, well, there was six hundred and something ways that you could become unclean, and so the priests tried to live this pristine lifestyle of not engaging with society just in case they became unclean because it just meant more sacrifices and more ceremonial cleaning to do. They became their own class of society and pretty much kept to themselves separate from everyone else. Bob needed a better priest (laughs) and so do we. So Bob gets the priest he needed but didn't deserve. We get the priest we needed but didn't deserve. Talking about Jesus as our great high priest, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 7, this is where we're up to in our series. Hebrews 7, we're just going to read the last part of that chapter from verse 23 onwards. Hebrews 7, 23, says, Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he, talking about Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Those who come to God through him, since he is always living, to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. First for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all time, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Here are the primary truths I want you to rest in today. We have in this better priest a complete salvation a complete salvation go back and look at verse 25 therefore he is able to completely save right he's able to save completely those who come to god through him since he always lives to intercede for them I want you to hear this morning, there isn't a downside to Jesus. We so often do that. We'll talk about something that's going on in our life, something positive in our life, something that we're excited about, and then we'll say, oh, but there's a downside. And we we balance it out. There isn't a downside to Jesus. There, There isn't a contingency plan that we need. With Jesus, there is no plan B. No backup required. Jesus is able to save completely. Yeah? No lack. There's no room for that in error. There's no room for improvement. He is able to save completely. Who can he save? The question's there. The answer's in the same text. Who can he save? He can save those who come to God through him. Those who come to God through him, he can save completely. Jesus is the better high priest who despised the shame of the cross who shamed his enemies instead as he took the record of our wrongs and nailed them to the cross with himself. The high priest who has conquered death, who rose victorious, who ascended to the Father, who intercedes forever as our mediator, he is the better high priest. There are no gaps There are no gaps in what God has done in Christ for your salvation. None. Jesus is the high priest that we need, but that we don't deserve. Have a look at verse 26. This is the kind of high priest we need. You want to know what type of mediator you need, that I need? This is it. This is the kind of high priest we need. Holy Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Everything that we could not achieve on our own, Jesus accomplishes for our behalf. He's our go-between, our representative. But instead of taking the worst of who we are, Jesus stands in our place and offers what we couldn't. Look at that list. He offers Holiness. When all we have are the fractured fragments of a distorted glory. Remember, we're the ones who measure ourselves and fall short every time. Jesus goes as our go-between, our mediator, our priest, and he offers holiness. Second thing he offers, innocence. Hold your hands out and look at them. You might not be able to see it, but they're stained with guilt. All our hands are. All of us, stained with guilt. And yet, Jesus goes as our go-between, our mediator, our priest, and he offers innocence. says that he stands undefiled, unstained. Most of our life, we, well, to use the language of the Bible, we dress up in our tuxedos of filthy rags. We we dress up and impress and try to do our best, but the Bible says they're filthy rags, right? But Jesus offers and he stands undefiled. And he goes as one that says they're separated from sinners. While we're the ones who have gone against the ruling of Psalm 1, we have walked in the advice of the wicked. We have stood in the pathway of sinners and we have sat with the company of mockers. But Jesus goes and stands as one separate from sinners. He's the one who is exalted above the heavens, whose name is above every name. While we're made of dust or a mist, the Bible says, that burns off with the midday sun, or a flower that blooms, but only briefly. Hebrew 7:27. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do. First for their own sins, then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. He doesn't need to. Jesus offers a once for all sacrifice, not for his sins because he had none, but for ours, once and for all. That's the kind of high priest we need, right? One that can save us to the uttermost, save us completely. But he even saves us in a more complete way than you may have guessed by that list alone. Because Jesus isn't a high priest who stands at a distance from us, he isn't holding his nose this morning, he doesn't suffer you to come into his presence. Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you, right? He loves you. He is not only a a sufficient salvation, the, the priest that we needed, but he is also a sympathetic Savior. As we finish, I want to remind you of some verses that we looked at as we were earlier in this series from Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4:15 says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us with our weakness but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need Jesus truly is gentle and lowly. He is. He doesn't stand far off. He isn't holding his nose. He doesn't just tolerate you. Jesus truly does love you. So to you who have forgotten what it feels like to be loved. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus loves you? And can save you to the uttermost. Or to those of you who are weighed down with the shame of your sin. Jesus loves you. And he can save you to the uttermost. Or to those of you who are striving to earn your way to climb another rung. Jesus loves you. 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 Not the you that you are trying to be, but the you that you are. Amen. And he can save you to the uttermost. To those of you who are unsure how you can even face your own family, let alone a heavenly father, Jesus loves you and can save you to the uttermost. To those of you who are tired of running, Jesus loves you and can save you to the uttermost. This is the kind of high priest that we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. But we also have a high priest who isn't unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, with thankfulness, with gratefulness, with wonder. But yet let us approach with boldness so that we may receive mercy And find grace to help us in time of need. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are sufficient. You are the priest that we need but don't deserve. But the priest who doesn't stand off at a distance. The priest who has drawn near. Sympathizing with our weakness and our frailty. And the priest who continually stands and offers, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. That's us this morning, Lord. We're weary and we're heavy heavy laden and we long for rest. And Lord, I thank you that in you we find it. For you are meek and lowly, in heart, and we will find rest for our souls when we find it in you. Thank you for your love for us, for accomplishing what we could not. So in your name we pray. Amen.